Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, did David Johnson make the right move by accepting the rapporteur job? We'll discuss that with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And is the relation between CSIS and the federal government broken? What's wrong there? Arrest warrant for uh, Vladimir Putin and the international courts. Is there any good in actually even laying that charge? And we'll cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to circle back to last week and the uh, the announcement by the Prime Minister uh, about, uh, well, David Johnston is the... Uh, it, well, the person who's basically supposed to unravel this mess about foreign uh, interference in, in uh, elections here in this country, uh, it's a story that uh, seems to be gaining an awful lot of traction. Uh, we're getting information leaked to us bit by bit. Uh, and then, of course, the appointment of, uh, of Mr. Johnson to actually oversee this uh, as a rapporteur, as the phrase is, uh, that uh, he's using. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what the ramifications are, but we do know that uh, notwithstanding uh, Mr. Johnson's uh, standing here in this country as a former governor general uh, and a man of what many people say is impeccable uh, integrity, uh, the opposition parties are taking shots left, right, and center. Pierre Polyev and a number of people of his, uh, his, cab- or his shadow cabinet rather have uh, made some rather pointed tweets about Mr. Johnson and that choice, and uh, the prime minister was uh, well defending him. Here's what the prime minister had to say a couple of days ago. And if everyone needed a really clear indication that partisanship is more important to conservatives than actual facts and reality, their completely unfounded attacks on David Johnston are exactly that. So let's uh, start there, and uh, we'll circle around to a couple of other things that are happening in Ottawa as well. And to do that, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Have we got Dr. Turnbull now? I think so. There you are. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to the program. Good to have <laughs> you with you? us today. Thanks so much. I think we've got the bugs. Wor- we got the bugs worked out. I guess so we can get going on this. Let me ask you right up front. Uh, since the prime minister made the announcement uh, about uh, Mr. Johnson uh, to to basically head this part of the investigation, anyway, are you surprised by the pushback that you've seen and heard? Um, not really, to be honest. Like at first, it seemed like um, people were generally positive. And like for the first 24 hours or so, maybe less, it seemed like most of the reaction was, hey, look, this guy is, you know, as you say, a man of integrity. He's been the governor general. He's done this type of thing before, uh, back when the government appointed the Oliphant Commission to look into the Mulroney-Schreiber relationship. And so, you know, everybody kind of trusts David Johnson to do the right thing. But then Andrew Coyne started talking about, hang on, you know, this is not the right, he's a person of integrity, no question. It's not about him. This isn't the right person for this job. And there's lots of factors that go into an appointment. You know, what makes a good appointment? And, you know, the questions about integrity are obviously very relevant. Questions of of merit and appropriateness for the job and the skill set, those things are obviously very important. But also, um, the independence factor is extremely important. And I think in this case, was probably more important even like even more important than it would normally be because of the nature of the investigation that needs to happen because it's inherently and highly political and highly open to partisan interpretation right and so the the need to have someone who is completely independent from government i think was very high here which is one of the reasons why we're seeing such a pushback 
Well, and and I think everybody's probably read Andrew Coyne's column by then, and a number of other oh, yeah. uh, colleagues that have, have actually answered that too. Uh, John Ibsen on the Globe and Mail today, uh, with his answer to that, still maintaining that he still thinks that, that uh, Johnson is the right choice. But and there's always a but after this. Uh, if there's a a, a, perce- a perception of of conflict of interest, uh, that that's enough really to to basically, I, I guess, pretty much you know soil the whole process here, isn't it? That and and you mentioned, for instance, about the the Mulroney investigation that uh, that, that uh, he set up some years ago now, but he was criticized even after that, as we recall, that uh, that he was soft on it. I mean, you know, there were some accusations made and some rather uh, uh, uncomfortable things, I guess, came out about the, Mr. Mulroney's behavior. Uh, but there were a lot of rocks that he did not turn over there. People are wondering, is he going to do the same thing here? Well, that's the thing. Um, the Mulroney-Schreiber situation was so complicated because the relationship went went on for years. And um, as you say, there was a lot of controversy and a lot of reaction around where Mr. Johnston put the parameters for that investigation. So at the time, in full disclosure, I was actually, um, I was part of the policy side of that where I I was hired as a kind of person to write a, a paper on what we should do about the ethics regime. So full disclosure about that. But in the first phase, I didn't, I did not work for a report for Mr. Johnston at the time, just to be clear. I was independent, but in the first phase, he decided, here's the part where we're going to look at Mulroney and Schreiber and the exchange of cash and what happened there. And in the second phase, we're going to look at the ethics regime in Canada to determine whether anything needs to be done there. So the first was very case specific in the kind of a fact finding mission. The second was a policy review. He decided that Airbus was not going to be part of any of the investigation because it was, you know, it had been investigated by the RCMP. That had a huge reaction because people were like, hang on, if we're not going to talk about Airbus, well, then what's the point? Because it all kind of revolves around that. And the reaction, but the answer to that was, but if, you know, if if that's all been investigated, um, I think there's a possibility that that you're kind of asking such a commission to wade into circumstances that are criminal or allegedly criminal. And as soon as that starts happening, you need to pass it over to the RCMP where it's been already. So I think Johnston, as a lawyer and a constitutional law expert, would have seen that as, you know, okay, we can't do this, so we're going to write the parameters this way. But I think there are, you know, however one feels about that, there's going to be questions around how he draws the parameters this time. Is he going to draw things in such a way that really allows for a deep dive into what's going on? Um, Because I think people, you know, really want to know what are the specifics, you know, if you're interested in this. What are the specifics of what happened or what didn't happen or whatever? But then there's also, in this case, a larger policy question and a larger question about the state of our democracy. Are we prepared as a, as a democracy, as a country, to be able to deal with the possibility of threats? And that's a question not just about the nature of the threats themselves, but it's also a question about us. And when we're looking at you know, a really lousy voter turnout, for example, in the last Ontario election, only 43.5.6% of people voted, do you really care if there's foreign interference yeah. in elections if you're not if you're not voting, right? So we've got a few things we need but if we're gonna have a real a real discussion, I think, about where we are in terms of our democracy. Well, especially as you mentioned about what the focus is going to be here, and I, I mentioned this on my commentary at CHML earlier this morning. There, there are a couple of, of of groups that are at work here. One of them, uh, let's face it, probably led by Mr. Polyev and and some of the people in his caucus. Uh, they want to see this report as as the thing that takes down this government. I mean, that that really seems to be the intention because everything Mr. Polyev says is Trudeau, Trudeau, Trudeau. It's not even about foreign interference. It's he wants to look at it from the angle that look at these guys were told and they did nothing. 
and so this is a, a really a show of, of, of no faith in this current government. That's his spin on it. Uh, the other, of course, are people, as, as you say, that, that want a full in, uh, investigation about everything that went on. How deeply is this foreign interference? How effective was it? Uh, what can we do to stop it? Those sorts of questions, which is going to take an awful lot more time. So uh, Mr. Johnson is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't here, no matter what he tries to do. I think that's right. And I think absolutely um, the conservatives want to be able to push on Trudeau's vulnerability here. What did you know? When did you know it? And why didn't you do anything about it? And isn't it because the interference that alleged to have happened was actually in your interest? So why would you disrupt that? But now even that part of it, there's a lot of people pulling on that thread and saying, look, you know, how, how much did China really favor Trudeau liberal government? And, you know, there's sort of a back and forth about what whether or not that's a really plausible thing. But I think you're right, too. Like, there's, there's a desire as well to unpack the whole story on a kind of, on a policy level, on a democracy level, on a much wider level. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Johnson came back with something that looked like, all right, we're going to have one investigation into the allegations, such as they are, and he may decide that NSI COP and the National Security and Intelligence Review are the right places to do that. And then he might say, we need to have a broader conversation around issues that relate to the integrity of democracy and where we are in terms of, you know, being informed, being able to recognize disinformation. How can we build our civic self-defense? Can we do these sorts of things better? How can we, you know, fire up interest in democracy so more people are voting? And all of those things are part of the same, you know, it's all part of the same phenomenon that we're seeing. And then there's, you know, there's, there's lots of that happening in other countries, too. So I think there's pressure on Johnson to get it right. And he's doing this in a way that's, I think, to me, kind of awkward in the sense that he, they've let him kind of write the terms of his own mandate. Whereas back when he was with Oliphant, Harper, Prime Minister Harper at the time, gave him a said, look, we need you to do these things. Whereas Trudeau is saying, like, you write the mandate and then you do it. And so it's a little, to me, it's giving him an awful lot of, of power to make the decision about how this is going to go forward. Well, exactly. It, which I, I guess segues us over to uh, well, the anonymous letter that was published in the Globe and Mail uh, from somebody who identifies themselves as a one of the person who leaked this information. I, I, we're either a current or former employee of CSIS. We're not quite sure because obviously there's no, there's no uh, identity attached to this whole thing. Uh, that seems to be the club that some people want to use to take the government on here and simply say they saw they knew about this and they did nothing about it. Um, it's it's an interesting letter. Uh, you know, I know everybody who's read it now has tried to analyze it and, and, and find out exactly what the message is here. The, the, the author of the letter suggests that it's not political. Uh, he doesn't hate the liberals, doesn't hate Justin Trudeau, but he says this information had to come out. Uh, do you take that at face value? I, I, because, you know, the term whistleblower here can have different connotations, I guess, depending on which side of the fence you're on. This is a very unusual thing. This is really unusual to have this kind of drop of information in the first place and then to have this letter written in the national newspaper that is un, you know unsigned and unattributed and the person is explaining what their motivations are and there's a sort of you know look i didn't um there's there seems to be no regret about having done what the person has done but there also seems to be a bit of a reaction to how the debate has really unraveled and how you know how partisan it's become and People are attacking one another over this. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, what did you think was going to happen? This is inherently a partisan issue. Sure. And it's going to play right into the hands of parties who are trying to hold one another responsible for it. 
And so, um, yeah, like here we are. And I don't know, there's going to be so many different threads to this, right? Like even getting at the, the letter itself and what that says about the relationship between, does it say anything about the relationship between CSIS and the government? Is this attitude indicative of something more broad at CSIS? Or is this something that, this is this a rogue uh, you know, good, perhaps with good reason, perhaps with not good reason, and and that's the same. You can be, you know, pro- you can have a problem with a leak at the same time as you have a problem with the fact that there's, you know, maybe there there hasn't been enough action on this particular issue. It's a uh, reminiscent of, of of the FBI investigation with Donald Trump south of the border a few years ago too, where you you don't know uh, where the information is coming from, you don't know who the authors are, you don't know how uh, legitimate uh, the the quote unquote information that we're getting is right now, uh, which is not really very helpful to 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 Mr. Johnson, I guess he he tries to go down this path, uh, and and again, you know, do we analyze this? Uh, do we? throw this into the mix and say, okay, let's talk about that relationship now between, uh, you know, security forces within the, you know, the RCMP and CSIS, I guess, initially, uh, and the government. And is there an information breakdown there someplace? Well, that's it, where it's going to add a sort of trickiness, right, in the sense that everything is going to be able to put out in the public eye. If you're talking about leaks of, of you know, national security information, leaks that are going to be stressed, highly sensitive and perhaps put people in danger. I mean, you can't just do that in, in an open court somewhere. Like, you have to do that behind, you know, in camera in a way that security isn't compromised. And so I'm going to trust Johnston to draw a line around, you know, where like, we're going to do this stuff sort of in camera. We're going to do this stuff out in the open, the other, other stuff out in the open. The, is, like, are the complaints about his potential lack of independence enough to undermine the exercise because if so it's really unfortunate right like to go through all this and then to have people say well come on he's just and i don't think it's fair for people to say look he's a liberal hack he's in trudeau's pocket i i don't think those things are plausible man has had an absolutely stellar career i don't think he's in anybody's pocket but a few people like warren kinsella have pointed out what in the heck does he want to do this for (laughs) like what why would he want it's a legitimate question isn't it interesting question yeah yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, you, you kind of think to yourself, like, w- with such an untarnished reputation, and this is such a flaming mess, like, I wonder, you know, I wonder why, what motivates him to do this. But, I mean, it could certainly be for love of country, right, which is probably why he's done everything he's done. But this is going to be a really kind of different spot for Johnston, I think, because he's going to be in the public eye and under a kind of scrutiny that he's not, um, that I think he's, he hasn't been the subject of before. Mm-hmm. But there was another interesting point on Twitter, too, about how, I think it was Max Fawcett who made this point, who writes for The Observer, maybe this was all a trap. You know, we appoint Johnston, see if Pierre Polyev takes the bait to attack this man who has, you know, served his country his whole life. So we'll see how that's working out. It's uh, curiouser and curiouser as we go down this path. It's uh, fascinating to watch how this is unfolding. Laurie, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. I'm sure there are more chapters of this saga, too. Oh, you got it. Take care, Bill. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to go back to talking about this letter here that uh, was published in the Globe and Mail over the weekend. Uh, and like I say, it's anonymous. They, they did not identify who the author is. Uh, it simply says the following opinion piece is written by a national security official. And there's some uh, very troubling 
detail in this letter uh, about the information that, that was forthcoming. This individual apparently identifies uh, themselves as, as the source of some of the leaks that we know so far from CSIS about uh, foreign interference. So what are the implications of that? And, and, and what is the relationship between the federal government and these security forces? A lot of questions to be asked here, uh, and we need some insight and some answers into that. And our next guest can help us out with that. She is uh, Stephanie Carvin, who's an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on. We've got all these uh, the phrases that we've all heard, whistleblower, uh, concerned citizen, et cetera, all you know, floating around about what went on here. When you saw the letter in the Globe and Mail, what was your reaction to it? So <laughs> I think, honestly, my first reaction was, I don't think this person really thought through what they were doing. I mean, I think they thought through the message they wanted to send, but like the message in the letter is very clear that this person is not necessarily politically motivated. They wanted to start a conversation about foreign interference in this country and in doing so uh, leak this information thinking that this wouldn't set off a partisan bombshell. Um, and of course, that's what it's turned into, right? Um, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of understanding in the country about how national security institutions work. And I think we've just seen a lot of um misleading reporting and information as a result of this. And uh, I don't think this was the person's intention, but this person just doesn't seem to have understood the consequences of their actions. Well, I, that was the same reaction I saw and felt as, a, as I was reading it the third or fourth time. Uh, you know, because they say, um, you know, that I, I do not uh, have anything against their, our political leaders, against our national security assembly, uh, and did not want this thing to get political. I guess they haven't been paying attention for the last four or five years because everything <laughs> in Ottawa is is not just political, but it's partisan. And it has been uh, for, for the longest time right now, not just the current cast of players, but I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. So uh, I don't know what kind of reaction this individual is expecting or how he expected people were going to respond to this, but uh, I I, I I'm not surprised by the political response to it, and I don't know that it's getting it so ahead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I mean, I, I used to work in national security. I still have friends mm. there. I know how frustrated they are, right, with this issue. Um, they've been frustrated by, in particular, foreign interference by China in Canada for some time. And in some ways, it doesn't surprise me that someone got to the point where they're like, look, the public needs to know this. This is bad. But there's ways of doing this, I think, that may have been better than just kind of leaking a bunch of information. Um, you know, a, a person can testify at parliament, right, and cannot be sued or uh, I suppose they can be fired. And this person doesn't clearly doesn't want to be fired. Um, but, you know, if you testify in front of parliament, you can't actually um, be held responsible for those kinds of things, right? You can't be prosecuted for it. That's part of our, our democratic system is that if you testify at a parliamentary um, uh, inquiry, you actually have a, a lot of privileges uh, associated with that. So like this person could have gone public and talked about what it is. I mean, there was a few years ago, if people remember, um, there was a diplomat who was upset about the way Canadian detainees were being handed over um, and concerns about torture and things like that. And that person testified to Parliament and was a whistleblower effectively. Um, and that's kind of the honorable way, I think, to do it. Uh, this person wants to leak information, but also kind of wants to keep all of the privileges associated with a government job. So in some ways, it's 
frustrating to me that this is the case, right? That this is someone who, um, um, you know, wants, wanted to start this conversation, didn't necessarily want to be political, despite, as you just said, um, every indication it would be, would be, I think, uh, as a result of this. Uh, and then finally, um, just kind of wanting to do all this while not facing any consequences is, um, I don't, I mean, I, I get it, but also I don't, I, I don't think this was the best way of going about it. What does this tell you about the relationship and and about the federal government and 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 the security agencies and Stephanie? I mean, uh, you know, because I've talked to former CSIS agents and well, and I'll, Phil Gursky is one of them, of course. And I know you know Phil, and he's he's become an author and he's got his uh, his own security business now. But he worked in CSIS as an analyst for quite some time, and I, I got the sense an awful lot of the time that he was frustrated uh, uh, and continues to be uh, because of the inaction, not just of this prime minister and this government, but over the last little while. In other words. And we're giving you the information here and you guys aren't doing anything about it or you don't understand it or something. So I, I understand the frustration here, but, but does this letter and the, and these leaks just make it worse or is it going to add some clarity and, and open a debate on it? I really do hope that there is an opportunity for something to happen. Um, we've already seen the government having to move on a foreign agency, a foreign agents registry act, for example. Um, but, I, I don't know to the extent that people realize, I mean, there's a lot of assumptions in the reporting that because this intelligence exists that the prime minister has seen it. There is no institution in government that forces the prime minister to look at intelligence. There is no equivalent of the presidential daily brief. Um, there's no body like the National Security Council, which brings intelligence into conversations about important domestic and international issues. They're really like Canadian prime ministers have largely ignored intelligence. It's just not been a part of their decision making. That's just the nature of our system. And that has to change, right? I mean, the world we live in is so complicated that, um, you know, for CSIS and other organizations to do all this work and for it to effectively go into a black hole, which effectively it does, um, you know, you put the information out there and unless it's like something burning on the prime minister's agenda, chances are he won't see it. Yeah, it, it is a real problem. We just, you know, we're a country that is surrounded by three oceans and the United States, and we've never really felt we've had to take security seriously. And this is a cultural issue, right? This is something that can be fixed. But um, so far, no one has been wanting to fix this. And these problems have been festering for a very long time. So again, like, I want to be clear, like, I understand the motivation. I, I'm going to take this person at their word about their motivations, right? Um, okay. I understand where they're coming from. But this, um, the fact is that we can't continue to have, I, I like, I think Canadians don't understand the extent to which our intelligence and national security uh, analysis mechanisms are broken. They just, this stuff just simply doesn't make it up the chain. And honestly, when the prime minister says, Hey, I never saw this stuff. I believe him. It is entirely possible that he was never br briefed on this. never saw it because a lot of the time the intelligence just kind of goes into people's inboxes and is never read. Well, that's uh, a little disturbing. I mean, uh, for the <laughs> that's last a lot disturbing. Years, we, we had a guy in the White House that didn't bother reading the briefings, and apparently up here they never even get to the PMO. Uh, I don't know where they are. You know, like, somewhere in the in the the ether here. I don't know what happens to these things. Uh, but it's it's you think there's it, that we're safe. You think that well, no, we've got the RCMP, we've got CSIS here. Uh, 
but is is the disconnect though, Stephanie, within the, the the system itself? Is it CSIS or is it is it you know in in Parliament? I mean, there's a communication problem here someplace uh, where the people that are supposed to be getting this information just don't seem to be getting it. So and the one information's of the major there, isn't it? challenges, I, yeah. So. I mean, it's just really hard, right? It's this kind of cultural thing where, um, you know, like I said, CSIS is very good at collecting intelligence, you know, within its mandate. Um, The RCMP has not done a great job at national security um, prosecutions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all sitting here kind of losing our minds over these stories about foreign interference. But, I mean, just a few months ago, um, one of Canada's most, you know, uh, like big, biggest spy scandals, which really wasn't even that big, like didn't really make the news that much, but a guy called Huang um, basically called the Chinese embassy and offered them tons of information about Canadian sub-designs um, and uh, was, you know, arrested, prosecuted, but we couldn't actually, we failed to prosecute this person, right? This person basically walked after having offered to give all this information to the Chinese government. And no one seems to care that that was the case, right? That we're not actually prosecuting the people who are doing this kind of stuff. And again, this does require the government to kind of fix certain gaps we have in the system. I mean, we don't have time to get into it today. But I mean, like this has been going on, um, you know, for those of us who kind of watch these national security stories, um, there's just so much that's broken. Uh, we just don't seem to be able to prosecute people. We don't seem to be able to get information up the chain. Uh, it's hard to get Canadians to focus on national security because we are so blessed to live in a wonderful, safe country. But um, we're starting to feel the pinch of that. And like I said, so... I'm hopeful that maybe this issue, and I don't think this issue is going away, man. I don't think it's going away for a long time. Uh, I'm hopeful this issue will start helping Canadians understand why this matters. Because, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe that our elections were compromised, but I sure as heck believe that governments are trying. And maybe they're not successful now, but they might be successful in the future. And that's a real problem. I, I'm running way over time, but I get 20 seconds. Sorry. Left. If you could just squeeze it. No, it's, uh, the other question here is, uh, how does this make us appear to our, our security partners, uh, to the Five Eyes and others? Because uh, we've heard in the past uh, there have been rumors about some frustration that said, you guys got to get your act together. Is, is this making that situation even more problematic? You know, I've had the opportunity to interview uh, Canada's allies in the intelligence space, and everything they tell me is that Canada is actually quite good at what it does. When, it want, when Canada wants to do something in intelligence space, it's very good at it. The problem is uh, they would like us to do more, right? They would like us to make more contributions and things like this. But the problem is, you know, that's not something we want to do. And there's clear problems with prosecution. So instead of prosecuting people in Canada, we find ways to get the U.S. to prosecute these people for us, right? Um, prosecuting people for sanctions, all these kinds of things. So yeah, I mean, they do want us to get our act together on prosecutions, and they would like us to do more in the intelligence space. Um, I don't think the news is all bad, but it could certainly be a lot better. Always great to get your perspective on, on such a key issue as this. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, that's uh, Professor Stephanie Carvin from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
The president of the International Criminal Court, Judge Piotr Hofmansky, says Russia's Vladimir Putin and the head of a Russian government children's bureau are being held personally responsible for taking Ukrainian children from Ukrainian occupied territories into the Russian Federation. Hofmansky says children receive special protection under the Geneva Conventions. It is forbidden by international law for occupied powers to transfer civilians from the territory they live in to other territories. While the ICC can issue the warrants, it cannot execute them and is asking for international cooperation in bringing in Putin. One expert says Putin will likely avoid traveling to countries where he might be turned in, although Moscow doesn't recognize the international court and has brushed off the war crimes charges. I'm Jackie Quinn. So what is the significance of, of laying these charges? And uh, to uh, get into that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, uh, thanks for making some time for us. Actually, Putin is in the news uh, the last couple of days for, for a couple of different things. But let's fo- let's focus on the charges, first of all. Sure. Uh, he's, he's charged in abstention. Yeah, there's probably, I don't even know if there's going to be a trial, but uh, you know, the, there's, there's nobody going to be marching into the Kremlin right now and saying, okay, Vladimir, you're under arrest. Come with us. Uh, is this symbolic or is there there's something more to it? I think both. Uh, and good morning, Bill. The charges actually are a bombshell. This is a member of the permanent, <laughs> permanent member of the Security Council and a nuclear armed state that has invaded a neighbor, violating the UN charter in itself. That, that He's already committed a war crime under UN uh, auspices simply by an, a war of aggression, which is also outlawed outlawed. That's that's what the UN is all about. Mm-hmm. But what we have now is the extraordinary situation where the a member of the Security Council, a permanent member, is personally named and held responsible, and an arrest warrant is basically going to be with him around his neck for life. This doesn't go away no matter how long he's in office or out of office. He's now branded a war criminal and subject to arrest and 123 countries, if those countries wish to exercise that right. So it's very important symbolically, but it also uh, adds a certain extra dimension (laughs) to the life of Mr. Putin as to where he can actually safely travel. And he's branded a war criminal. That's got to mean something in the world. Will this? Will there be a trial to follow this? I mean, these are the charges that have been laid. Do they actually go through a trial uh, without him there? No, there, there will not be a trial in absentia, although there's some uh, that's not under the ICC rules, but now there's some close reading of the ICC rules where they could, in absentia, in effect, review the charges. So it becomes de facto a, a trial in absentia. But it is meaningful that, you know, an Interpol red notice can go out and uh, Mr. Putin theoretically could be arrested by any state that's a signatory. We are signatories. Uh, had he, if he decides to come here, we have an obligation. And, ob- and this is important to underline. The signatories, the 123 states ha- that have signed on, are obligated uh, to exercise a warrant for arrest. So it is, a, it is very much a symbolic act. We can talk a bit about how Mr. Xi would like to shake the hands of a war criminal mm-hmm. and, and others uh, going forward. But it also has some very practical implications, uh, potentially, as well. 
he's not the only one that was named, of course, uh, just for our listeners' sake, uh, that uh, Russia's Commissioner for Children's Rights, which is kind of an oxymoron, isn't it, uh, is also uh, wanted by the ICC for the same crimes, uh, maybe more likely to, to actually face uh, judge and jury on this. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but uh, getting behind, uh, well, the, the, the Iron Curtain isn't there anymore, at least uh, physically not, but uh, it looks as if uh, this is, as you say, symbolic of the situation. Uh, but this is a guy, that, as you've talked about many times in the past, Elliot, uh, that doesn't like to fee- see his name or his reputation be smirched. So he's he's got to react to this in some way, shape, or form. Yes, of course, he's saying that's uh, disavowing it, saying it has no consequences they don't recognize it and it's it's just not not a real thing in their view and of course since they're not a state party they haven't signed on to the ICC the the uh, they can say that with some I guess legitimacy but we should also stand back and say a couple things as well he's being charged on one very specific act as part of a much broader pattern of potential future uh, additional crimes against humanity or war crimes, uh, there may well be additional charges. This is the one the ICC made a choice, made a choice to uh, pursue. And they did it in part because the chief prosecutor there, Kareem Khan, has a personal interest in seeing to it that the most vulnerable people, that is the children uh, caught in war, are looked after. So we have to remind ourselves that this is all about moving children out of Ukraine, taking them into Russia across 42 different centers. We're learning a lot more about this mm-hmm. and putting them in basically into re-education camps to say, really, you're Russian, you are not Ukrainian, uh, eliminating any sense of the existence of Ukraine. And this is a potentially a gen- genocide charge. And then putting them up for adoption. And, there are, and, and they are apparently being adopted. So there's both sides to this. We do have to remember this is about the children caught in war. Which uh, I think dovetails quite nicely into what I wanted to talk about next. <laughs> Putin was in Ukraine over the weekend for all intents and purposes. He won't say that, uh, but he was in Mariupol, one of the, the, the cities that was hotly contested during the, the early days of the war. Uh, the significance of that visit, I mean, it, it's really a kind of a, a Again, sending a message, I guess, to Zelensky and others that uh, that this is ours now, and and you know you're not getting it back. And it's there. There were implications, uh, the photo op, and, and everything else that uh, that seemed to follow. Yes, he's saying this is Russian territory, and I can go on to it, and he did, and he went to Crimea uh, on the anniversary of <laughs> of the occupation, and then he went on to Mariupol, which was very symbolically important. Remember, it was there that there was an, a, a, what was an opera house, but became a collection center, particularly for children, women and children. And on the roof of that building, that historic and lovely building, apparently, they had spelled out, there are children here, and Russia went ahead and bombed it. So that's a war crime uh, that has lingered in all of our minds, as has uh, it, the destruction of Mariupol itself. He was shown in kind of the reconstructed portion you know, everything's normal here, but the city itself was devastated by Russian arms. The um, The whole war is such a tragedy, Bill, that we, we cannot get used to the idea that a state can invade another state, destroy huge swaths of the, of the cities involved, and take children uh, across borders and, and basically kidnap them and never allowing them to return. 
Tragic story. Uh, you mentioned uh, President Xi just a few minutes ago. Yes. Uh, as we speak, he's he's in Moscow uh, as a show of support uh, for Putin, I guess, and what's going on in, in Ukraine these days. Uh, the significance of this visit, again, I mean, we know that they've been talking back and forth uh, for the last little while. You know there have been hints about uh, Chinese uh, military forces actually lending assistance to the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, it, this strengthens this alliance, but I guess you have to ask yourself, Elliot, what are the next steps here? We aren't certain of what's going to happen in three days worth of a visit there. I think the length of the visit in itself is very important because we don't really know what they're going to be talking about off the record. On the record, what we see is that Xi Jinping has rushed uh, to show great support to his his good friend, and they refer to them that way. Uh, they, he is clearly showing support for a pariah state that's losing a war and losing the war of public opinion, at least for much of the world, but not all of the world. We have to remember that as mm -hmm. well. He's saying, yes, we, we have your back. What they, and they're apparently going to sign another agreement as they did earlier, just before the invasion. Uh, you know, this is a, tree, a, a friendship without a, any borders. This is an alliance without limits. Apparently, they're going to sign some more uh, documents to that effect. You know, we, are, we are friends forever in all kinds of ways, apparently. What are they talking about off the record? And I think that's only speculation. One possibility is Mr. Putin is going to be informed by China. You've made a mess here. Uh, we'll back you up to the degree we can publicly. We'll protect you uh, in, the, in the United Nations. We will provide the money for your war by buying your oil. Uh, long-term contract at a discount where they have to build new pipelines through Kazakhstan to deliver it. Exactly. But, but uh, we don't want you to, uh, we don't want you to take us down with you. Or are they going to say, we can't afford to lose. The autocrats involved here cannot allow NATO to win. And we're going to back you in ways which aren't very visible to the world. And that may well include providing through third parties, some kind of uh, military support which they can't do publicly because if they do it publicly, they get tangled up in secondary sanctions. Exactly. This is a very momentous meeting between uh, two leaders of the anti-Western coalition, the anti-Western concept of how the world works coalition. And we'll, uh, we're seeing it in real time in front of us at a time when the war grinds on in Ukraine. We'll have to leave it there for now. As you say, uh, more to come on this as that meeting unfolds. But thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Ellie Tepper from uh, Carlton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump stealing headlines again, uh, as he usually does, of course, with a, an announcement on social media uh, just a couple of days ago that uh, he says he's going to be arrested tomorrow. Uh, nobody's actually confirming or denying that sort of a situation, but we know that there are a number of different investigations about Trump and his activities, and uh, well, ones from the Southern District of New York may actually come to fruition sooner than later. Uh, to get some uh, perspective on this, please welcome back to the program, Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News. Uh, Reggie, great to have you back in the program on a busy day. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. What's, what's, the, what's the story here with Trump? As I say, he posted this on social media. Uh, nobody in, in the Southern District is actually confirming or denying this, but that grand jury is meeting again today. Uh, is, is this the calm before the storm? 
I mean, it very well could be. Uh, this was the former president putting out uh, a statement over the weekend saying uh, that an arrest was imminent. As you said, though, the Southern District, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney, not saying anything like that. But this was likely an attempt to rile up the base to try and ensure that there is support uh, beneath him. Uh, and you're also right in that this grand jury is meeting today. There is a Trump surrogate that is going to be testifying before the grand jury in place of Donald Trump, who denied or declined that request to come uh, and testify. But what's also interesting is that Michael Cohen, the star witness here for the prosecution, he is also on standby as a way to try and rebut anything that may come from the Trump team today. So whatever is going on, it's not a done deal yet, but Donald Trump still believes that something bad is coming his way. Uh, and we don't know whether there's a leak or something else, or as you say, maybe he's just beating the drum for his own sake. Uh, but he did, he did actually state that he wanted his, his supporters to, to protest this. Uh, which I guess brought back some rather eerie memories of January 6th a couple of years ago when he basically said the same thing in front of the White House, and we saw how that ended up. Uh, but but is, is there a concern right now, I would guess, in New York, Reggie, since that's where the, the announcement will be made, if in fact it's going to happen? Are there some security concerns right there downtown in Manhattan? Yeah, absolutely there are. And look, not just in downtown Manhattan, but also in Mar-a-Lago or in Palm Beach, Florida, where the president uh, lives uh, and elsewhere around the country. And you're right. We've been here before. We've heard the former president kind of call on his supporters to, you know, take to the streets to show their support or their dissatisfaction for what he seems to think is this ongoing political witch hunt uh, that has been after him for the last several years. And in New York City, members of the police department, members of the mayor's office, they met uh, virtually on Sunday to kind of come up with a contingency plan here if something were to erupt in the city. And uh, I should point out that in southern Manhattan tonight or maybe later this afternoon, there there is a planned kind of pro-Trump protest in and around uh, the courthouse. So, th so there is an opportunity for something to happen here. There's an opportunity for something to happen uh, in Florida. And we have seen what happens if and when this potentially gets out of control, all because of the, the former president's call for his base to do something. It is simply a, a wait and see, but it is a wait and see at the edge of the seat. There's been reaction, as there always is when Trump says something outrageous uh, such as this. Uh, but surprisingly, some of the people who come to his defense have raised a few eyebrows. Uh, I mean, you would expect the usual suspects of McCarthy, of course. But uh, but Mike Pence, former vice president, his former vice president, uh, seemed to come out in support of Trump yesterday, didn't he? Well, it, and it's interesting because this is somebody who is not technically in the 2024 race yet, but uh, is widely expected to be entering. And instead of kind of carving a path forward for himself to leave the former president and his former boss in the dust, he's once again found himself in a position of having to stand behind and prop up the former president. And what does that do? Well, it allows for the base to ensure that, you know, there are still people who are kind of Trump friendly or potentially Trump light uh, should they need to move somewhere else. Uh, but it becomes problematic for these candidates if they're unable to distance themselves from whether it's the political scandal or the personal scandals that continue to follow Donald Trump. I think what's also remarkable here, Bill, is that when you mentioned Kevin McCarthy, over the weekend, he was sitting there trying to say, look, this is an ongoing weaponization of the government going after the former president. So again, trying to blame this on the administration. Well, at the same time, saying, well, Donald Trump doesn't actually want people to go out and protest in the streets when it was Donald Trump himself who was asking for people to go out into the streets to protest.
It's amazing when you look at exactly how people responded to this. Could it well be, and it's, it's awfully hard to try to go figure out what's going on in, in his head awful at the time, Reggie, but uh, the, the call to arms such as it was, you know, say, people, I want you to protest that if, in fact, they're going to do this to me. Uh, is, is that to send a message to the to the Mike Pence's and the DeSantis's and others, and you know, Nikki Haley, that I'm still the guy, I've, I've got this, this army of supporters behind me, and I can weaponize them, and I can motivate them. Uh, you guys don't have that power. I do. I think it, it might not even be the power. I think it is the, it's the stark reality that he's still trying to paint towards uh, people who will be or are currently in the race behind him, in that there is only a finite pool of Republican voters, and he is still trying to remind the group that he is the de facto leader of the party and that the party uh, base still ultimately stands behind him. Look, this was a base that actively called for uh, the death of Mike Pence during the January 6th riot. This is a base who at some points has been you know, on Donald Trump's side in criticizing Ron DeSantis, especially when it came to kind of state level policies that he was putting in place during the pandemic. So Trump is trying to say, look, I can get this crowd to do something and I can also get this crowd to not do something but still stand behind me. They're warning shots. We have to wait to see kind of how far or how bright these warning shots are, depending on what comes out of the out of the uh, uh, the grand jury. I, I know we're kind of getting into the air of speculation here, Reggie. But if this were to happen, if the the grand jury does bring down an indictment, uh, how does how do you expect this to roll out? I mean, uh, are they going to march into the an office and, and put them in cuffs? Or I mean, we saw that happen with some of the other people that have been arrested because of some of these charges. Uh, but at the same time, invariably, there's another option here, and that's basically to have his attorneys bring him in uh, where charges can officially be laid. And, and that's not as dramatic necessarily, but uh, maybe to avoid uh, the, you know, the big show, they may want to do that. Or maybe they want a big show when they see him actually being arrested. Yeah, well, look, I just spoke to a lawyer uh, maybe 15 minutes ago uh, who made a point of saying, look, under New York law, Donald Trump is going to need to find his way to uh, the courthouse, because he will, if if an indictment comes down, he will have to be fingerprinted. He will have to have uh, Miranda rights read to him. He will have to have uh, a mugshot taken, and that is because this is what happens uh, at the state level. Uh, it's unclear what his attorneys are going to do. Uh, you know, if they're going to make this kind of a a simple process or as simple as they can, because this is ultimately the former president, and he's going to be shrouded by Secret Service uh, through the entire way. But it's also hard to see how this isn't going to become. Um, a media circus or kind of a big public spectacle, especially because we've already heard reports that if and when or should this happen, Donald Trump himself wants to speak afterwards and to make a statement again uh, to try and keep the focus on himself, to try and continuously portray him as the victim. So however it portray or however it plays out, rather, um, this is going to be a giant public show. We just don't know what the time frame is going to be again if it happens. Uh, for him to get from Mar-a-Lago into New York, but there will be a process that he will have to follow. Well, we should remind our listeners, uh, too, that uh, this is really based on, on things that Trump has said. Uh, you know, the Southern District is not confirming nor denying this, uh, but there is, as I watched some of the commentators over the last couple of days, Reggie, responding to this, a certain surprise among some of them that uh, that this was actually moving to the at this pace now, uh, because it seems to be somewhat contradictory to what a lot of people were thinking that the Southern District had kind of lost interest in, in moving against Trump on a lot of these charges. And then bingo, something all of a sudden seems to have reinvigorated the, uh, the investigation. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's worth pointing out, too, this is the scandal, um, you know, linked to the hush money payments or alleged hush money payments made to 
uh, adult film star Stormy Daniels to keep uh, an alleged affair quiet that was funneled through Michael Cohen and ultimately, you know, allegedly written off as a business expense, which would be a misdemeanor for kind of cooking the books, but also potentially becomes a, a, a campaign finance violation, which would rise it up to a potential uh, felony. Um, you know, again, the feds walked away from this. They didn't believe they had a strong enough case, but these are state level charges. This is the state uh, district attorney that is moving forward and carrying out uh, this grand jury investigation. So, you know, the fact that they asked Donald Trump to testify and he declined and you have things kind of wrapping up fairly quickly here. The DA's office says that they have an incredibly strong case that's linked to strong um, evidence that was gathered from the search at Michael Cohen's house. And you also have a star witness that served jail time for campaign finance violations linked to this. So, Ultimately, whatever happens, if something happens, the DA's office believes that they had an ability to move forward with this based on what they believe to be actual factual evidence. But it, there's a gamble here, isn't there, Reggie? I mean, in doing it in this fashion, as publicly as they are, as uh, as John Bolton, the former security advisor, I guess, for Trump, he was in his inner circle for a period of time anyway, he wrote a rather uh, a, a cryptic book about Trump uh, not too long after that, of course. But John Bolton says, look, they better get this right and they better convict him because if they charge him and he gets off, uh, he's going to win the election uh, in two years. Uh, and there may be some validity to that. And it's not just John Bolton. It's not just Republicans that are saying that. There were Democrats over the week weekend as well, uh, Arizona Senator Mark Kelly saying that the case needs to be strong. Why does it need to be strong? Well, because this could, you know, a, a loss for the district attorney could, you know, lead to a political, uh, bigger political future for Donald Trump, but also because this is unprecedented to go after a former president uh, with these kinds of charges and to try and indict them. Uh, Republicans and Democrats are saying that the case needs to be strong. So there is a real potential here that if Donald Trump is not indicted, that he is able to elevate himself to say, look, this political witch hunt continues. I've dodged these bullets before and I continue to do so. At the same time, there's a risk that if he is indicted, uh, that this is simply going to you know, fire up the base and also ultimately elevate him again to say that he is an ongoing victim of this political persecution. It could win. Uh, it could present itself as a win for Donald Trump in both ways, and Democrats need to be prepared for whatever happens. Let's talk about, and again, we don't know what, what charges are going to be laid. This is all speculative at this stage. Uh, but uh, one of the commentators was suggesting this is like going after a flea with a sledgehammer, that, that you don't really need to do this. If this had been anybody else, uh, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But it's Donald Trump, so they're making it a big deal. Uh, and, and I guess you can't really comment on that one way or another in the absence of the information about what the charges actually are. But uh, at the same time, uh, they seem to be wanting to make a statement here, don't they? Well, I think that they're trying to make a statement. But I think, as you've heard from so many Democrats and from so many members of the law enforcement community who are involved in this, namely from the district attorney's office, that they're trying to make it a, a very loud statement that no one is above the law. And regardless of whether it is a misdemeanor from uh, you know falsifying business records or uh, something far more serious, uh, even if it's a low-level felony for campaign finance violations, that, that nobody can skirt the law simply because of a position that they once held or because of a last name that they have. So regardless of, of what the kind of bluster is in Washington, uh, there is a kind of concerted effort here to show that, uh, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or anyone else, that if a crime is committed, that ultimately a consequence needs to be experienced. 
Is this going to have any impact at all on, on some of the other investigations? You mentioned Mar-a-Lago. That's ongoing. A number of different things in, that he's facing in the legal world. Department of Justice investigation, I think, is still ongoing, too, isn't it? Uh, do they hit pause or, or do they continue? No, these investigations continue. Yes, you're right. The Department of Justice, the special counsel is still moving forward with the document scandal uh, and other uh, and other ongoing investigations. There's also the ongoing state level investigation into Georgia linked to Donald Trump's um, alleged attempts to try and overturn the election. And that you know special grand jury already came out with saying that there are a number of people who should be charged with a crime. And if Bonnie Willis, the, the district attorney in Fulton County, opts to move forward, she could seat another grand jury to open up an investigation into Trump. So whatever happens with this one, this is simply a state level charge in potential charge in New York. That's not going to stop other state prosecutors from moving forward. It's not going to stop the Department of Justice from moving forward. This is going to be an incredibly kind of legally perilous year and a half for Donald Trump as he tries to march towards 2024. Also worth pointing out, Bill, if someone is indicted, if they're charged, whatever might happen, the Constitution of the United States does not make that uh, disqualifier to be able to run for president. It says nothing about indictments. This simply could, it, whatever happens, continue to work in Donald Trump's favor. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they, they are right. I mean, they do say, and you've, you've been reporting, of course, that, you know, they, this is the first time that a former president has, has been indicted, if in fact that happens. But also, the, if it helps, it's also going to be the first time somebody who's indicted is running for president, uh, notwithstanding, because he says he's, he's not dropping out one way or another, no matter what's going to happen here. So uh, the legal battles continue for him uh, right through until, well, who knows uh, just how severe it's going to get. But the charges, I'm glad you brought up the, the Georgia situation, because they were talking about actually charging him with racketeering, which is a pretty serious offense, and that's that's heavy jail time. It, it would be heavy jail time. And again, uh, there is additional evidence that's coming out that Donald Trump had uh, a large part in whatever was trying to you know play out in Georgia to try and slow down uh, that election. There is a third phone call that uh, has now been released uh, where Trump was trying to get the, the, the kind of legislator to sit and hold a special session. So this is a prosecutor. Again, she is barely new into the job, but is pushing forward at full steam to ensure that there is accountability uh, for what they believe were crimes that took place in Georgia. And again, it is that ongoing phrase from Democrats and some Republicans that nobody can be above the law. Very fluid story right now. And uh, we'll be watching, of course, on Global National for your reporting on this uh, over the next, well, 24 hours, especially to find out what's going on. Reggie, thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, who was uh, tracking this story uh, with so many other people, of course, because of the implications uh, of uh, actual indictment against uh, Donald Trump. I mean, they've talked about this, and as Reggie has been reporting uh, from Washington, uh, he's had legal troubles for many, many years now, and uh, and various things have gone on in this uh, realm about exactly what his involvement way may well have been. Uh, but the testimony of Michael Cohen, who actually, as Reggie mentioned, did go to jail uh, based on this very uh, same circumstance here with Stormy Daniels, uh, with the hush money payments. Uh, there's that element to it. Uh, there's some players, a video of an interview Trump gave to the press uh, while he was on his plane just around that same time, where he denied any interest at all or any knowledge of who Stormy Daniels was or checks or anything else. Uh, and I'm sure that's something that's going to get brought up through this trial, if in fact it's going to happen sooner than later. Story, more to come on this, as they say. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.